You are listening to a message from Crestview Bible Church in Hutchinson, Kansas. For more information and additional resources, visit us at CrestviewBibleChurch.org. In his excellent book on relationships, Paul Tripp confesses, Conflict broke out between me and my wife the other day in our kitchen. I was putting dishes in the dishwasher and she was cooking dinner. We both got in each other's way and then got sarcastic with each other. I said, I would hate to get in your way while I loaded the dishwasher. And she replied, I would hate to get in your way while I cook dinner. What was going on? And this is Tripp recounting again. He said, well, I had a desire to accomplish a task and was feeling rather self-righteous about what a sacrificial husband I was. My wife also had a desire to accomplish a task and was feeling self-righteous about what a sacrificial wife and mother she was. Both of our desires on the surface were good desires. I wanted to help in the kitchen, and she wanted to serve the family by cooking dinner. But these desires quickly turned from good to selfish. I wanted to serve, but it had to be on my terms and conditions and on my time schedule. My wife wanted to serve, but she wanted to do it without any distractions. The selfishness showed itself in our self-righteous comments. We both wanted to be recognized for our service, and when it didn't happen, we had conflict. We divorced our service from God's glory and the other's good and turned it into self-service. I'll serve when I want to, and I want to be appreciated when I do. So do you identify with that example in any way? Um, I know I do. What begins as good intentions and what begins as a well-meaning direction to serve can easily spiral into sinful attitudes that are put on display for everyone to see. And part of our living in a sinful and fallen world is that we will face conflict. It doesn't matter where life takes you, conflict is pretty close and usually pretty apparent. We face conflict because when sinful human beings begin colliding with one another, Conflict is a natural result. It's just part of what happens when we're, when we're living in this world. So today, it might be very easy for you to blame conflict on someone else. Um, most all of us think that conflict's a problem. Very few of us recognize that it's our fault or that we're to blame. So we're easy to point the finger on someone else. So do you think that? Do you feel that conflict's are someone else's fault? Do you feel that if everyone just left you alone, you wouldn't have any conflict? Do you consistently think that you didn't have any part to play in a conflict? That it was just that spouse of yours? Or do you recognize the role that you play? These are the types of questions that we're going to get at in our passage today. And so we're coming to the book of James. We've been in Genesis 1-3 to for these last three sermons And we've talked a lot about conflict even in Genesis 1-3 to and how God is promising that he's going to fix all those wrongs that we've seen. Uh, James is interested in us living according to godly wisdom. So if if your eyes move up from James 4 into James 3 verses 13 through 18, at the end of chapter 3 we're really encouraged in the book of James to live lives in the reality of the wisdom that's from above. What does that wisdom that's from above look like? Well, it's pure. It's peaceable. 
It's gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy and full of good fruit. And the result of this, at the end of the passage there, look at verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When we live that kind of way, that's what happens. Peace comes. Peace is not only sown, but it's made. So embracing this encouragement then, we might wonder, well, if we're all living according to godly wisdom, where do conflicts come from? I mean, it sounds good. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to live in godly wisdom and be pure and wise and sensible and bearing good fruit with the ultimate fruit of being, you know, sowing peace and making peace? Who doesn't want that? Well, where does all this come from then? And that's the question that James answers in James 4, verses 1 through 10. God's after our hearts. The greatest conflict in the world is the conflict that we've had with him. He's made us for himself, and rather than living for him, we've chose to go our own way and separate ourselves from him. Our sin has caused a conflict. It's caused a separation to occur between our maker and us. And so today, not only does this passage speak of restoration to God through what he's done for us through his son, which, again, we've talked about this morning, but just so that you're clear, our conflict with him is, was so great that he had to send his son to live a perfect life in our place, to die in our place, and to rise again so that we would know life, to put an end to the conflict between sinful humanity and a holy God. So the Bible talks about God being our peace. God's reconciled us. That's the language. He's reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. So all that's true. That's the greatest conflict that exists. But for, for many of us, even though we're believers, we still struggle with conflict. And so today I hope God does a work in our hearts to soften our hearts. Um, I would hope that as a result of this sermon, that you as a believer would, would know your selfish tendencies better. That you would realize um, just the depths of your selfishness. Because that's a grace, that's a grace from God, to be able to recognize that, and to be able to step into conflict in that way. Note with that understanding will change things. So there's hope. The gospel reminds us that there's hope. We're not left to ourselves. So maybe you have a pattern of walking in conflict. It doesn't matter who's around you. It seems like you can't get along with anybody. That's probably just not because everybody's a bunch of jerks, although that may be true. It's probably the case that you're jerk number one. <laughs> It might be the case that you're just a selfish pig and you haven't recognized it. And so God is shining light on that, and it's a gospel grace that that can be seen. So if you have a pattern of walking in conflict, the gospel says that those wrongs can be righted, that we don't have to remain there. Repentance and faith can be pursued. God can be glorified in our lives. So again, all of this we see... Uh, we're kind of given illumination of this in uh, James chapter 4. So let me read James 4, verses 1 through 10, and let's look at this together. Here's what the Bible says here. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Such good news. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So three revelations about conflict in this passage are... You could say three spotlights are are shown on conflict. We're given three insights and understand conflict. And the first revelation that we get is that the real source of conflict is within us. It's within us. Look at that in verses 1 to 3. James is very precise in telling us, isn't he? He asks, what causes all the fights and quarrels among you? And then says, here's the answer. It's this. Your passions are at war within you. That's the issue. Your passions are at war within you. It doesn't matter what the conflict is, that's going on. Whether it's a conflict at the church level where people are wanting to salvage their church or their kind of way of church, or whether it's a conflict going on in your home where one person wants their way, there are desires that are waging war within you, and that's where conflict is coming. They're at work within us. They're at war. Look at how this is displayed in verse 2. You desire and don't have, so you murder. (laughs) We covet and we don't get, so we fight and quarrel. We don't have because we don't even consider asking God, the giver of all good things. And when we do ask, we ask with motives that are so selfish and rooted in our own selfish desires that it's not even in keeping with God's will at all. It's not even on the horizon of what God would answer because we're so far off in our asking. So do you get that? See that? Verse 3, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's all about you. God's never answered a prayer that's just all about you. That's not, how, that's not the governing thing of His reality. I mean, the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the source of conflict is our a sinful heart waging war within us. Passions. And passions really are selfish desires. These selfish desires spring us into conflict with others. But they don't always begin as selfish desires, do they? Um, In your notes there, you'll see a little block of text. Um, This is from page 82 of Tim Lane and Paul Tripp's book called Relationships. And this paragraph, I think, is is so helpful because it shows how innocent things like comfort and pleasure and power, and control, and acceptance, things that aren't wrong, can easily spin out of control in selfish desires. So each of these things becomes sinful, like the scriptures say, when we allow them to move, or like Tripp says, when we allow them to move from blessings to things that replace the one who blesses. So when we start seeing these things not as things that God's given us to enjoy, but as things that we're meant to have and own, then that's when we drift into conflict. So God, for instance, 
has given us all things to enjoy. But we easily drift into thinking that we want, or we must have, or we deserve something. So, look at comfort. I want, I must have, and deserve comfort. And you better not get in the way of me getting it. I fear hard work. Because I was meant to have comfort. Comfort's a blessing from God. But if I start centering my life on how I have to have that at all costs, then I'm going to be lazy. I'm not going to work hard. Because I've just turned inward. Or pleasure. I want, I must have, and deserve pleasure. And you better give it to me. Fear pain. So anything that numbs the pain. So all these things. Recognition. Power. Control. All these things can easily spin out of control. So can you identify with any of these good things that spin out of control into sinful expressions? What could you maybe add to the list? Think about that. What's not here that is a good thing that God's given and maybe easily spins out of control? Selfishness. So for many of us, what we communicate about conflict, like if somebody asks you, what's going on? Why is it so messed up? Um, we, we don't communicate. We communicate the opposite of what James says about conflict, right? So difficult times happen and we find ourselves in the midst of conflict and we say something like, well, I did that because you, or I wouldn't be so angry if you wouldn't do this. You know, in other words, it's if you didn't do this, then there wouldn't be any problems, but it's all because of you. We don't realize that there's something sinful within us. Our typical response in conflict is to point the finger at our opponent. And we feel justified. This person has done something annoying, frustrating, or even downright sinful. But James doesn't let us off the hook that easy, does he? He makes it clear that even if someone has sinned against us, the reason we fight is because there's something wrong within us. I mean, really, is it surprising that someone's going to sin against you in this life? I mean, is anybody surprised at that fact? Like, you bump into someone and they act sinful towards you, and you're like, well, this is shocking. I mean, I can't believe this would happen. I mean, really, we know people are just sinners. I mean, we know that. But somehow, when we're in the midst of conflict, we're, we're shocked that, well, this person acted sinful towards me. Therefore, I'm justified to do what I do. What? No, it's, there's something within you that might be causing the conflict. There's something going on in your own heart that's causing this to exist. So that's the first revelation that we need from this passage. This is God's word. Again, this isn't Phil thinking, well, here's how psychologically we can put this together. No, this is God saying from his heart, the reason there's fights and quarrels among you is because there's something wrong inside you. You have passions that are at war. That's why there's quarreling. That's why there's fighting. The real source of conflict is within us. Another revelation we get is in verse 4. That selfish pursuits align us with the world. So if the real source of conflict is within us and it's selfish desire, what's so wrong with selfish desire, right? I mean, say, so yeah, I'm selfish every once in a while. What's the big deal about that? You know. Again, is this surprising to anyone that anyone's selfish? Well, what's the problem with that? That's what verse 4 identifies. Look at what verse 4 says. 
You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So this is really a description of what, what's the spiritual damage that these evil desires that cause conflict result in. Well, and James begins with pretty stiff language here, doesn't he? He calls us an adulterous people. Spiritual adultery is not just like some small charge, right? Spiritual adultery is like saying, you're cheating on your lover. You're cheating on the lover of your soul. That's what's going on when you're giving in to selfishness. When you're living that way, you're not like just strolling along, just living your best life now. No, when you go selfish, you're going anti-God. That's what James is saying in verse 4. You're cheating on the lover of your soul. You're an adulterous people. He's trying to wake us. He's using strong language here that if we allow self to govern our lives, we've left the fellowship of God and committed spiritual adultery. And he's not overstating it, is he? I mean, when we allow selfish desires to dictate how we respond to others, we're not serving God and honoring Him above all. We're not saying that He's the supreme desire of our affections. No, we're allowing another God to be the one that we're most allegiant to. And that's the God of self. We're serving the God of self with all of our heart. So James continues asking a question. Look at verse 4. I mean, he doesn't let go. I mean, you think that would be enough to wake us up, but he doesn't let go. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Yeah, yeah I kind of knew that. And so to really get what he's saying here, he restates it. Whoever wishes to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what does it mean to be a friend of the world? It means to be locked in arms with the way the world goes about doing things. To do, the world doesn't seek God's glory as the supreme aim of their lives. The world isn't governed by anything but themselves. And so James is saying, when you pursue selfishness, this isn't some spiritual path you're walking and quit trying to talk like it is. You're committing spiritual adultery. You're cheating on God. You're becoming a friend of the world. And anyone who's a friend of the world is an enemy of God. So... We can't allow self to dictate our lives. When we do that, we're locking arms with the system of the world. And the world system is anti-God. And so we end up being swiftly washed downstream to the stream of being God's enemy. We're not acting as if we're beloved sons and daughters, holy and dearly loved by a father. We're acting as if our kingdom reigns supreme. That's why we're pursuing selfishness. And we can easily see that in the case of conflicts, can't we? So next time you're in the midst of a serious disagreement, if you would have the sense to do this, this would be very revealing. Most of us, we're so selfish in the moment of conflict that we can't even conceive of asking this question. But think about a time when you were just super hot, super angry about something, and ask yourself, what's more important to me than God's glory? Right in this moment. In what ways am I trying to serve myself right in this moment? What did I want and didn't get? These questions help us discern our heart's true motives in a way that will enable us to honor God with our actions. That's what's going on. And think about that. When you're in a heated moment, is my supreme aim right now really the glory of God? What was it that I wanted that I didn't get? 
How am I trying to serve myself? It's very revealing. And it doesn't matter what side of the conflict you're on. It's very revealing. You may have been sinned against. And asking this question is going to completely change, asking these questions will completely change your tone and attitude towards that person. Frees us from self. So we've seen two revelations that the, the real source of our conflict is within us, with the evil desires, and when we serve those evil desires, it causes us to join the world as God's enemy. So at this point, you may be wondering, well, then what's the remedy? How do we fix this? How do we respond? What hope is there? And that's where the remedy comes in verses 5 through 10. Verses 5 through 10. Um, and it really begins with humility. So the final revelation, the final spotlight, the final insight that we're given is that conflict is remedied with humility. That's, that's the virtue that we're called to here in verses 5 through 10. Humility. Humility in its most basic definition. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you could define humility. The best way to define it maybe simply in this context would be humility is admitting that I'm not God. Admitting that I'm not God. So pride is exalting ourselves and serving ourselves ultimately. Humility is seeking to serve God preeminently. Seeking to serve Him ultimately. So look at how James pleads us to leave, leave selfishness behind in verses 5 through 10. He begins with God's heart in verse 5. Do you suppose that it's no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Um, just hear his longing there. Verse 5 is telling us that God cares, just like if a spouse cheated on us and we would feel betrayed, jealous, and angry. Our spiritual adultery of serving ourselves rather than God causes God to yearn for us, to long for us. Scripture teaches that God's a jealous God. And here we see that in action. He, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. He wants that fellowship. He longs for that. He longs for us to live in the reality of a right relationship with him, a right relationship where that vertical axis is right, where I'm not the God of the universe, he is. That's how he wants us to live. And this passage is saying that he longs for that. He longs for us to recognize that true relationship to him. He, he longs for us to submit to him with humility. And he continues in verse 6. That's where I pause in the middle of my reading that God gives more grace. Not only does he yearn and long for that spirit to dwell in our hearts, but he gives more grace. He, he treats us like we don't deserve. He, he pours and lavishes the love out upon us. He, he pours His grace. He pours His unmerited favor upon us. And this has always been God's pattern. He opposes the proud in verse 6. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So when we're engaged in selfish desires, God gives us grace to see that part of our conflict is selfish that it's my selfish desires at work. And he does this so we can respond in humility and return to him. 
He longs for us to be restored and to honor Him. So humility brings us back to Him. Humility keeps that tenderness between us and God alive. And we, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if humility is us admitting that we're not God, we need that continual rhythm and reminders all in our lives because we tend to think that we are God. Just go through the next week not getting anything you want and you're going to begin shaking your fist thinking, what did I do wrong? Why are you doing this to me? It's because we think we have this level of entitlement in our minds and lives. We're selfish. So we need humility. We need humility to create that tenderness between us and God again. Oh yeah, you're God, I'm not. Humility brings us there. Humility also keeps Satan at bay. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So when we embrace God as our Lord, when we submit to him, when we're practicing humility, we're resisting the selfish work of the devil in our lives, then there's this nearness to God where we're submitting ourselves to him. So Satan loves it when we're engaged in serving selfish desires. He's at work to do that. What's he at work to do? He's at work to steal, to kill and destroy God's good work in our lives. So when we rein in our selfish desires through humility, we're submitting to God. We're bowing our knee to him and we're resisting Satan's influence in our lives. We're resisting the devil's influence. And this causes him to have no place to have a stronghold within us. He'll flee. He'll flee. Well, I can't do anything here because this person doesn't think they're God. I mean, wasn't that, wasn't that the temptation he gave Eve in, in chapter 3? Well, the reason God doesn't want you to eat from that tree is because he knows that the moment you eat of it, you'll be like him. And now James is saying, humble yourself before the Lord. Submit to him. Resist the devil and he'll flee. Because Satan, he can't do anything with that. Well, I'm not God. I don't, what do you mean I'll see things like him? I'm not God. There's nothing for him to do there. So it keeps him at bay. Humility also gives us pliable hearts before the Lord, before God. Look at verses 8 and 9. It continues. Um, draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. So when we're shedding the effects of selfishness and we're humbly drawing, drawing near to God for more and more of him, he in turn draws near to us. And our humility is demonstrated in this pliable reaction to the sinful tendencies we've embraced. So where we used to... Look at, look at the actions here. Cleansing, purification, being wretched, mourn, weeping. These are just appropriate reactions of a humble person, right? So cleansing our hands because we're sinners. Just owning that outwardly. Yeah, I'm dirty and I've wronged you. So we just admit that. We own it. We purify our hearts. That's the inner part, right? Look, we're called they're double-minded. We're called double-minded. Again, noting the shiftiness with which we operate. On the one hand, we claim to be we're all about God and then on the other hand, we're selfish to the core. So we, we purify our hearts as double-minded. 
We're struck with the sobering reality of sin. We're wretched. We mourn. We weep. And we deal with sin appropriately. We repent. We see. We admit. We confess and forsake sin. We see sin for what it is. We admit it. We own it. We confess it. And we forsake it. So last week again, um, I talked about how it's way better to say, forgive me, than I'm sorry. And this is part of this process here. Humility is saying, listen, I wronged you. I'm admitting that. I'm confessing it. And I don't want that to characterize me. I'm forsaking it. And look, we also turn to God for mercy. Our laughter's turned to mourning. Our joy's turned to gloom. We, we turn to Christ and the mercy that he's offered us through his son in the gospel. We receive in that. We, we rest in that. We walk in a way that's proper before God. We, we know the reality of restoration. So having hearts that are right before him engage, causes us to engage differently in how we act towards others. And look at verse 10, how this all ends. Humility is how we glorify God. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So just like we saw in verse 5, James closes with one final appeal to make it clear to us of what he's talking about. There's no honoring of God without humility. You can't beat your chest and say, I'm the greatest person in the world and be honoring to God. Because it doesn't work. You're a sinner that's justified by him. And he's done a lot to make you who you are. So I'm not undermining your identity in him at all. But it's about him. It's about him. We humble ourselves before him, and as a result of that, he exalts us. Uh, One writer said, as you are laid low by God's grace, he promises to lift you up. You're being turned right side up. You're placing your life within the bigger circle of God's glory and renewing your love for him. That's the exalting. I mean, coming full circle in our logo here, we talked about a home established on the word. This is how you get that trajectory upward. This is how you glorify God in your marriage. You're you're humble. Humble before God, but that's going to relate to how you act with one another. You're humble. A humble demeanor is necessary then to remedy conflict. Well, as we finish up this morning, we've seen three revelations concerning conflict. That the real source of conflict is within us. That when we pursue self, it aligns us with the world and then conflicts remedied with humility. So I have three words of application. And so quickly, just our ultimate conflict. I talked about this at the beginning. Our ultimate conflict, the ultimate conflict that we know is between God and us. We're called to humble ourselves. Uh, The biblical language for that would be called repentance, turn from our sins and embrace Jesus. There's no hope to be free from selfish living apart from the gospel. So in Christ, we become new creations. In Christ, we no longer live for ourselves. Now we live for him who died and rose again for us. That's how that transaction takes place. The old way of doing things is gone and the new has come. So if you haven't today, the first step that you need to pursue is to find hope for your conflict between you and God in the gospel. You can be reconciled to him. It's the gospel that teaches us forgiveness so that we can forgive as the Lord forgave us. We need all these realities to permeate our hearts so that conflict doesn't overcome us. But we overcome conflict for God's glory in the gospel. So our ultimate conflict is with God, and we remedy that by turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus. 
So have you done that today? I want to say a word about conflict and growth. So how does God make you holy? How does God make you holy? Well, he does it a lot of times through conflict. Through conflict. God allows us to struggle with these raging selfish desires so that his holiness and his grace can permeate all that we do. Um, too often in Christian circles, we view conflict as if you know it's someone else's fault, and if they just get their order, life in order, then we wouldn't have these issues. No, conflict is probably our fault, so that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we would pursue holiness um, through those dif- disagreements. Um, remember the Lord's Supper passage, First um, Corinthians 11. Paul says to the Corinthian church, there must be divisions among you. There has to be. Because how else do you know who's in and who's out? How else do you know who are mine and who aren't? It's kind of what Jesus is saying. And, and conflict relates to that. Conflict does that. You begin to learn real quickly in the midst of a conflict whether or not someone's really a believer by how they respond. I've been in the midst of conflict where somebody's refused to forgive me. And they did that on biblical grounds somehow. Um, You know, forgive as the Lord forgave you, that command. They disobeyed that biblically somehow. I don't know, it's crazy. Um, But we we can become so wrapped up in ourselves that we just, we lose sight of things. And conflict is a way to just humble us. Conflict is a way to work holiness in our lives. Um, That's why today, even though some of you might have been stung that there's another church in town celebrating its 20th anniversary today, we can rejoice because God's worked that for holiness. God's worked that to magnify his grace. He's done that in our lives, and we trust he's done it in theirs. Um, It's not about us. It's about him. Um, So, conflict relates to growth. Conflict comes and embrace it as a means to grow in humility and grace. But if you're going to live the rest of your life saying, well, it's all their fault, if they would just get ready get their problems fixed and we would all work, get along okay, you've misunderstood the Bible because there's things in your life that are messed up. And ultimately, we are reconciled to God to reconcile with one another. Jesus said um, to his followers in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers for they are the children of God. So as, we're, as we learn the sinful tendencies of our own hearts, God allows us to be peacemakers in the midst of a world system oriented to self. Um, the world isn't interested in... The world r- wants to real quickly clarify whose fault it is in the midst of the conflict. And then let's put all the blame on them so that we can move on ahead and they can own their part of the mess and then we'll move on. That's not the case when we talk about being children of God. Our identity as children of God means that we're making peace. So when we allow conflict to fester and spiral out of control, when we blame others, when we harbor resentment, we're not demonstrating that we're children of God, 
we're demonstrating that we're friends of the world and that we're spiritual adulterers. And it's not my language. It's God's. So we need to embrace this ministry of reconciliation as a way to honor God. Um, You ought to get better at managing conflict the longer you're in relationship with one another. Because grace continues to just spiral out in wider and wider waves. So, as people who want our lives to count, to glorify and enjoy God forever through Jesus Christ, let's step boldly into the conflicts that we're engaged in. And let's manifest humility. Humility. That we're not God and He is. And let's do all this for His glory. Thank you for listening. We hope this message helps you to glorify God and enjoy Him forever.